Well, I invite you to turn again with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, we'll be picking up where we left off just a few weeks ago at verse 5, and we'll be going through to chapter 2, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. Again, this is God's Word. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great Salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Our great God, We come to Your Word as those who believe in the Father, believe in the Son, believe in the Holy Spirit. As we come to Your Word, which is light, we ask that in Your light we would see light. Particularly, the light of the glory of God of God as it is revealed in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Well, as we continue walking our way through the book of Hebrews, I want to remind you just briefly where we've been so far to set the stage for this evening. 
We've already seen that the author is concerned about the state of his hearers. Particularly, he's concerned that his hearers would not go back to those old forms of worship and life which characterize the Old Covenant age. And in so doing, reject Jesus Christ. He argues that there is really no reason to turn back, for in verses 1 and 2, he tells us that God's final speech has arrived. And so to turn back to anything prior would be to move from a state of maturity to that of immaturity. I believe we put it like this a few weeks ago. It would be like a 12th grader in school wanting to go back to the first grade because he preferred nap time. But having said that, Having said that, it's not a matter for the author of preference. It's not as though he simply prefers the new covenant to the old. No, you see, in the case for the author of Hebrews, this is not a matter of preference. It's a matter of the Gospel. For to turn back would be to reject And so this evening, having made this statement in verse 4 that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Having said that, He's going to now prove that in the following verses from a number of quotes from the Old Testament. And then we're going to springboard from that into Chapter 2. But to keep all that in our minds, I, I want one brief sentence summary to keep in your minds as we walk through the text. My point this evening is this. Pay attention to the message you have heard about Christ so that you might not drift from Him. Pay attention to the message you have heard about Christ so that you might not drift from Him. You see, it's not merely a message. It is that. But it's a person that we're concerned about this evening. Now, as I just stated in verses 5 through 14, the following uh, section in chapter 1 that we'll consider first, this serves us in two ways. First, it connects us to what came before in verses 1 through 4, but it also connects us obviously, to chapter 2, which comes right after. And so I just want to show first how this works. First, 5 through 14 sets us up, as I said, as the proof for why verse 4 is true. Why is Christ superior to the angels? Well, here are a number of reasons. But secondly, then, it provides us with the message to which chapter 2, verse 1 speaks of. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Well, what have we heard? Chapter 1, 5 through 14. So it serves as the middle ground between these two things. So I want to look briefly at those first two things and then we'll really get into verses 5 through 14. First, the author gives us 
a number of verses here in 5 through 14 as to why Jesus, the Son of God, is superior to the angels. Now, you may be asking, why does the author of Hebrews spend so much time with angels? Why is he seeking to prove the superiority of Christ to the angels? It's not exactly clear. Now, some scholars and theologians believe that there was a a tendency in the early church towards a form of angel worship, whatever that may have looked like. Some believe that's why he's dealing with angels. But I think verse 2 of chapter 2 actually gives us an interesting insight into maybe why is he dealing with angels in chapter 1. Look with me, chapter 2, verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. In other words, he's making a statement here about the mediation of the angels. Exactly what he's referring to here may be cleared up by Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul's in a discussion of why was the law, particularly that which came in at the time of Moses, why was the law given? And he says in Galatians 3.19, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And then he says, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. In other words, the angels, however we understand it, served in some capacity to mediate that Old Covenant law. Exactly how that came to be, we're not entirely sure, but there are three references in the New Testament that speak to this reality. And so I think what the author is doing is showing the superiority of Christ who inaugurates this new covenant. And he says, he's the mediator of the new covenant, and he's far superior to those angels which, along with Moses and others, in some form, mediated. So it seems to be that's the case here in chapter 1. So he goes to prove in a number of ways, and we will look at these briefly. So hang tight. Chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, beginning with verse 5 of chapter 1, he argues for a number of ways that the Son of God is superior to the angels. First, in verse 5, he says that Christ is the Son, whereas angels are created. Verse 5, for which For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, the author is going to appeal to a number of Old Testament texts. You may have those in your Bible noted at the bottom. And there's a host of them. We don't have the time necessarily this evening to look through every single one of these texts. I want to give a a brief survey of those. Moving then into our our main portion of chapter 2. Here the author utilizes Psalm 2, which is a great messianic song. Uh, It sets in contrast the, the rulers of this earth as they set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. And he, the author of Hebrews applies this very psalm to Jesus Christ. This is also found in Acts chapter 13 during one of Paul's sermons. He does the same move. He applies Psalm 2 to Jesus Christ upon His resurrection. 
So that when Christ has been raised, He is, as Romans 1.4 says, declared to be the Son of God in power. This is the move that the author of Hebrews is making. He is far superior to the angels because He is the Son of God in power. Raised up. The second way He shows the superiority of Christ is in verse 6. Christ is the one worshipped whereas the angels are merely worshippers. Verse 6, he says, let all God's angels worship Him. Now, in the context, this is taken most likely from Deuteronomy. This is referring to to God, the, the covenant Lord of Israel. And the author of Hebrews is now saying that Christ, as the Son of God, who we've seen, is God Himself, also is to be worshipped. In Revelation chapter 19, we actually find this dynamic uh, quite clearly. Revelation chapter 19, the Apostle John has this vision. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And he records these words. Speaking with an angel, the angel says to me, John speaking, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And here it is. Then I, John, fell down at his feet to worship him. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. For I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And so, the angels are merely like us in the sense that we worship God. And the author of Hebrews is saying, the Son of God is to be worshipped. Well, because He is God, as we see verses 8-12. through But of the Son... He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Here we have the Son of God as God, set over against the angels who are merely creatures. Now we affirm in our affirmations of faith, in our catechisms, about the fact that God is one, And God is three. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, for example, asks how many persons are there in the Godhead? The answer, there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. It's one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. And yet, it is most fundamental to our faith. And so, as God, three and one, we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God. And finally, in verses 13 through 14, the author says that Christ is the King, but the angels are merely ministers of the King. Look with me again in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those 
who are to inherit salvation. This is from Psalm 110, verse 1, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, speaking to this figure who would be the the son of David, who would be David's Lord. And again, the author of Hebrews applies it directly to the Son of God incarnate as He has come in history. So Christ is superior to the angels. And then we move really into the main portion of our text for this evening. The author then, having set the stage by showing the superiority of Christ to the angelic beings, then moves into exhortation. Look with me, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, because of what I have just said about Christ, therefore we must pay closer attention. We must pay closer attention. John Brown of Edinburgh, 1700s to 1800s, he puts it this way. To give heed, or in our translation, to pay much closer attention, is to apply the mind to a particular subject, to attend to it, to consider it. It's a a function of the mind to pay attention. Now, some of you will know this better than others. Some of you as school teachers will know exactly what I'm describing. You're sitting in class, maybe you're teaching or maybe you're listening, and you very clearly know that there are kids in your room that are not paying attention. It's very obvious. They're dozing off. They're not paying attention. They're not taking any notes. And then, further down your lesson, you get to a point where there's something that you know is important, and so you say to the class, Class, now this is going to be on your test. And what happens when you say those words? Those kids who are dozing off now all of a sudden pick up their pencils and begin to write. Because they recognize that something here is important for you. Now, that's by no means autobiographical in any sense. But it's an activity of the mind. You must set your mind to engage upon, in this context, the message that has been delivered. To pay attention is to set your mind towards a subject, as Brown says, to apply, to attend to it, to consider it. The Scriptures are concerned about the mind of the Christian. Think about Paul's statement in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. So God is concerned about the mind. It is the, the vehicle, it is the means by which He communicates His truth to us. And in other words, we also can say we cannot apply ourselves, we cannot pay attention to something that we don't know. We need to know something, we need to be told something, conveyed something to us in order to really pay attention to it. So what is it that we are to pay attention to? Well, verse 1 tells us it is paying attention to that which we have heard. It's a message that we are to engage. And see, the mind, 
The mind of the Christian is a battlefield. As I just said, God is concerned to communicate truth to us by way of the mind. But you know who else is concerned about our minds? It's the world. The world, likewise, seeks to communicate truth, so-called, to the world by way of the mind. It begins with the youth training the children particular ideologies and particular doctrines which are blatantly contrary to God's Word. And then it simply progresses as the children grow older. They begin to advance themselves out into the world. Then they reach high school. Then they reach college in the secular university sphere where atheistic worldviews are being constantly uh, placed upon the children. And then, as they grow older, it seems as though this is all they've ever known. And the real danger is, the real danger is, when those teachings and those Doctrines begin to infiltrate the church. Just recently, this past week, read an article, listened to a podcast, describing the state of the Church of Scotland. The statistics were utterly astounding. 1.3 million Members in just one generation went down to 300,000. What once was a stalwart beacon of hope in this world, seemingly shutting their doors because of irrelevance. And what is so ironic about that scenario is that when you think you're becoming more relevant to the world, you're actually becoming irrelevant. When you cave to become like the world, you have nothing to offer the world because you are simply just like the world. And so the author is concerned for his hearers, for those in the church, to pay attention to the message. Because... When an individual, when a church, when a denomination fails to pay attention to the message of Scripture, inevitably, the result is drifting. Drifting. So there is a specific message that we must set our mind in accordance with God's Word upon. You see also, though, the author is not a relativist. He he doesn't just say, pick a truth, pick some message out there, and pay attention to it. No. He says, our message, the message that has been passed down, verses 2-4, through from Christ, then through His apostles, and then through us as the ministers, give this Word. It's that Word and no other that we are to heed. But he's also 
not an emotionalist. The author does not say, look within oneself to find the answers. Unlike our modern man, which says that all the answers that one needs are found merely by looking in, the author says actually the answers are found without. It's a message outside of you that you must pay attention to. It is an objective truth. It is not subjective. And so we are called to ground our life as Christians in what we have heard in God's Word and not what we feel or see going on in the world. And this really is from the start of Scripture all the way through the pages of God's Word. This, indeed, is one of the great temptations. Remember Eve in the garden when the fruit was a delight to her eyes. She took it. Rather than paying attention, rather than heeding to God's Word, Eve paid attention to someone else's word. Well, what's the reason that the author gives? Why is it so important that we heed the message? Well, the reason is in verse 1 again, at the end of verse 1, lest we drift away from it. Now, this language is is so wonderful. There's so much jam-packed into this language of, of drifting away. The, the meaning conveyed has a sense of, 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 of the sea. It's a nautical imagery here. The language is conveying the sense of, of the boat in the ocean that, that is merely drifting along past its destination. And if you have experienced this maybe yourself, you're, you're, you're out fishing or something on a boat in the ocean and, and you cast it you're not paying much attention. You're so focused on, on feeling the tug, you don't even realize you're drifting. And, and all of a sudden you look and, and you think, that, that house that was right there, all of a sudden, you're a you're hundred yards away. Again, John Brown describing this somewhat lengthy quote, bear with me, but he describes this so, so beautifully, this dynamic here of the drift. He says this, there is something very instructive in, the, in this figurative representation. The Christian is embarked in his little vessel on the stream of life, and he is bound to the new Jerusalem. The winds of temptation, the tides of corrupt custom, powerful undercurrent of depraved inclination all present such obstacles in the way of his reaching the desired haven. He is in great apparent hazard of being carried away past the celestial city and of making shipwreck on the shores of the land of destruction. He is in reality quite safe. He depends safely on the power and faithfulness of his Lord and King, whose will all the elements obey. But that power and faithfulness are manifested according to fixed laws. And this is one of them, that the Christian mariner or sailor constantly attend or give earnest heed to the instructions he has received. If any man who seems to others or seems to himself a believer, but does not give heed to the things which are spoken, will most assuredly come short of the celestial blessedness. He will float past the harbor of rest and destruction 
in its most fearful form, ultimately will overtake him. This is the first of five exhortations, five challenges, five warnings from the author of Hebrews. He's speaking to those in the church, to professing believers, and he's saying there is a real danger, friends, of drifting. Drifting even to the point of real danger. You see that danger in verses 2 through 4. And the real danger with drifting, just like that boat, the real danger for the Christian is that when you drift, you don't even realize you're drifting a lot of the times. Briefly, what are some causes of drifting? Well, they all, of course, center around the message. I want to just hone in a little deeper on three brief areas. What are some causes of drifting in the life of the Christian? First, we again see it in terms of the message of verse 1. First, it's neglect of God's Word. Neglect of God's Word is sure to lead to drifting. There's no doubt about it. We've just seen it in a church denomination. It's got, it can happen in a church, and it will no doubt happen in the individual's life who neglects God's Word. In His light, and His light alone, we see light. Secondly, neglect of God's people, chapter 10, verse 25, encourages us to gather and to assemble together with those of the church as we see the day drawing near. Neglect of God's worship will inevitably lead to drift. And thirdly, we see this again in chapter 3 of Hebrews, living in, notice, notice the words, living in clear, unrepentant sin will lead to drifting. Of course we're all sinners. We recognize that. That's why we're here. We need God's grace. But clear, unrepentant sin will lead to significant drifting. And the danger, as I already said, of drifting is ultimate judgment. That's what he's saying to the church. He is saying this is a real possibility. Of course we believe that there is no way in which a Christian can lose his salvation. But a Christian who simply does not heed the message is not actually a Christian at all. And it's very easy to go through one's life and to be a part of the church professing your faith to others and yet not actually possess that faith which you say you profess. And that's precisely the danger that the author sees. A danger of drifting. A danger, as he says, of neglecting such a great salvation. Is that what you think of your salvation? You see it as such a great salvation. I want to conclude with just a few more observations. You may say, I didn't even realize I was drifting. What do I do? What do I do if I'm drifting? Or what do I do if I realize sometime in the future I begin to drift? Well, he gives us the remedy. And in fact, we actually already discussed the remedy. The remedy though I must say, is not what we think we want. We want 
And this is exacerbated even in our own context in America of individualism. We want a checklist. If I realize I'm drifting, just give me ten things to do and I'll be back on track. But that's not what the author says. There's no, there's no doubt there are things to be done, but that's not first and foremost. The remedy for both the one who is fearful that sometime in the future he will be drifting and the one who is indeed drifting is the same. It's the object of the message. Chapter 1. Well, what is the object of the message? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the remedy for drifters. And He's the remedy for those who fear they may drift in the future. It's Jesus Christ, as Calvin says, clothed in the Gospel. The Gospel wrapped around Him. He is the remedy. And so maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you realize, I am drifting. And no one may know it. You may be the only one. What do I do? There's only one answer for you. The answer is flee to Christ. He's the only remedy for you. But I want to press that. What does it mean to flee then to Christ? It can become a very ethereal thing. So I want to hone in just a little more as we conclude. The Lord, in both Old and New Testaments, has given the church means, instruments, by which the church lays hold and rests upon Christ. In the Old Covenant, you have the sacrificial system. You have these objects, these types, and these foreshadowings of Christ. The confession is beautiful in this regard. It says that Christ was actually communicated to the church through those ordinances. And so it is for the Christian in the New Covenant. We also have means ordained by the Lord by which we lay hold and rest upon Christ. And so there's only really one way to flee to Him. It's fleeing to Him as God has ordained you to by means of the things He has given the church. And I want to illustrate this briefly in two different ways. The first maybe isn't as good as the second. If you begin having problems with your car and you realize, I need to get this thing fixed and you know somebody maybe in the church and so you go to them and you present the problem and he's a mechanic so he knows exactly what's going on. He prescribes exactly what you need to do. You need to get X, Y, and Z parts in order to fix the car. Well, a number of weeks go by and you come back to church a few weeks later and you're furious, furious with this guy. You go to him and you say, my car is not fixed. And so he says, okay, so settle down. What, what have you done? You say, I've done nothing. He says, but, but I told you, you needed to get X, Y, and Z in order to fix the car. 
See, so it is for Christians. Sometimes we neglect those very means by which God changes his people. Now, that illustration no doubt falls through, tends to put the emphasis upon what we do as the fixer. But maybe the second illustration will be better. You begin feeling sick. You begin uh, feeling some aches and pains. And so you go to your doctor and you present the problems you're feeling. This happens when I do this. Or it begins to, to come on me at this time of day. And so the doctor says, okay, no problem. I'm going to prescribe you some medicine. You need to take two pills. Both every day, one every 12 hours. So you go home. And you begin taking the pills. And you come back two weeks later for your checkup. And the doctor says, how are you feeling? And you're furious again. And he says, well, what have you been doing? Well, I've been taking the pill each day. And he says, wait, 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 wait. The pill? You say, yeah, I didn't really feel like taking the second one. I just wanted to take one of them. And he says, no, 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 no. You see, you have to take both for it to be effective for you. So oftentimes, friends, it can be the case for Christians that we neglect the very means that God promises to change us. You see, we don't change ourselves. God and God alone changes us, but God uses means to change you. Jesus makes this very, very clear in John 17. He says, as He's praying to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. In other words, the means, according to Jesus, by which you are sanctified is according to the means of God's Word. So to run outside of His Word is to run outside of the means by which He changes you. And so as the church, we must consistently abide by those means of God's worship, God's Word, God's people, the, the worship as a whole as we sing praises to God, as we, as we hear the Word going forth, as we lift our prayers to God, and as we see the Gospel on display in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those, friends, are the means by which God changes you. Those are the means by which you flee to Christ. Not some other way, but the ways God has given in His Word. And so I challenge you today, do not lay this aside. If you are drifting, do not wait another day. Because just like that fisherman on the boat begins to drift further and further and further, so the Christian may continue in this backsliding state so I challenge you, flee to Christ. Sit under His Word. Bask in the glory of Jesus Christ. The only remedy for drifters. Let's pray. Our Lord, O oh Lord our God, we are so thankful that You have, have placed us here this evening to sit under Your Word and to hear Your Word 
give clarity. We pray for any here this evening who know themselves to be drifting. Oh God, would they plead out to you for grace. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would work in their hearts. Call them back to yourself and may they hear the voice of the great shepherd calling his sheep to himself. Oh Lord, build us up. Build us up, we pray, for the glory of your name. We pray all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the great remedy. Amen.